Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey, Cardio Nerds family, Dan Ambender here. It's time to dive back into our comprehensive adult congenital heart disease series, co-chaired by doctors Agnes Kogso, Dan Clark, and Josh Safe. In this episode, we have the pleasure of learning all about transposition of the great arteries from faculty expert Dr. Man Jokadar and fellow lead Dr. Bryn Connor. Stay with us. We thank our collaborators at the Adult Congenital Heart Association, the CHIP Network, and Heart University. These are organizations with incredibly committed people who work tirelessly to improve the lives of those living with ACHD. You can find the links to these organizations in the episode description. Remember, CardiNerds is an independently fellow-founded educational platform with a mission to democratize cardiovascular education. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. Be sure to collect free CME using the link in the episode description. And do be a nerd. Spread the word by rating and reviewing us on your favorite podcast app. And more importantly, by telling your friends, family, and colleagues about the show. All right, enough from me. Do enjoy. Hey, Cardio Nerds. It's Josh Safe, and I'm here with Amit. We're very excited to present another of our Cardio Nerds ACHD series installments. In this episode, we will be reviewing detransposition of the great arteries. Joining us today will be Dr. Bryn Connor from Stanford University and Dr. Man Jokadar from Emory University. First, I'd like to introduce Dr. Connor. So Bryn initially was at UC San Diego, where she received her bachelor degrees and graduated summa cum laude and Phi Beta Kappa. She went on to medical school at Georgetown, where she graduated AOA. She then made a decision, in my opinion, a smart decision, to pursue congenital heart disease as her career focus. She did pediatric residency at Georgetown and went on to pediatric cardiology at Stanford University. Welcome to CardioNerds, Bryn. Thank you. I have the great privilege of introducing Dr. Man Jokodak. Dr. Jokodaga obtained his medical degree from the University of Damascus School of Medicine. He subsequently completed his internal medicine residency at Mayo Clinic before moving ultimately to Atlanta to complete his adult cardiology fellowship and for the subspecialty training in advanced heart failure at Emory. He since remained on faculty at Emory, where he currently serves as the ECHG Fellowship Program Director. Thank you for that introduction. So to start us off, uh, Dr. Jokodaga, I was wondering, as a current pediatric cardiology fellow, hoping to pursue ultimately a career in ACHG, I'd love to hear how you initially became interested in the field. I was attracted to the complexity and the challenge of congenital heart disease, but what really drew me most were my mentors. I had the opportunity to meet some amazing people in the field, and and ultimately that's what drew me to the field. And also the unique connection that adult congenital has with the patients is really special. You know, we get to know our patients very well and follow them for a long time. And there's a trust that is built that lasts many years and decades. And that to me is really special. But what drew me to it initially was, you know, the special people in the field. Dr. Jokadar, I think in introducing you, we should also mention that you're quite the educator and the artist. You sent us a YouTube video this morning where essentially you recorded yourself hand drawing this complex anatomy, the topic for our discussion, transposition of the great arteries, explaining the different variants and different surgical approaches. So for the audience, we'll include the link to that YouTube video in the episode description. But Dr. Jokadar, when did you get into medical art? Was that before or after your ACHD decision? Or is that something that just comes with being an ACHD aficionado? 
That's very generous of you to call that art. You know, I'm a visual person and to understand something, I have to draw it. That's how I taught myself congenital heart disease and drawing something is how I work with trainees at all different levels. But, you know, I'll, I'll call it art. I'm good with that. Well, then we can all be visual with you together and refer to that as we're diving deep in TGA today. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll echo that sentiments. I definitely would call it art. I really enjoyed the video myself. I can't wait for everybody to see it. And I'll also say that, you know, the idea of strong mentors leading you to a career in ACHD is something that I think we've heard a number of times on the show and I think really shows the strength of the community that's out there in ACHD. But anyway, I digress. Thank you both so much for joining us today. We're all so excited to learn about one of the classic forms of complex congenital heart disease, detransposition in the great arteries. Let's first review some of the basics, and then we'll dive into a particularly interesting case that highlights the long-term challenges faced in the medical and surgical management of these patients. Bryn, can you walk us through the basic anatomic features of DTGA? Of course. As you guys probably may have read about or seen, there's a couple different schools of thought when it comes to description of anatomical variants in DTGA, as well as just in general with congenital heart disease. So we tend to follow the Van Paragian school of thought, although Bob Anderson obviously is very prominent in the field as well. And I've actually had the chance to meet him. So I'm going to try to make him proud. And I'm teaching you guys what he taught me. So the nomenclature of congenital heart disease can be very confusing, but in its simplest form, Detransposition of the great arteries is defined by the origin of the arterial trunks from the morphologically inappropriate ventricle. So the aorta arising from the morphological right ventricle and the pulmonary trunk arising from the morphological left ventricle. So this is what we term ventricular arterial discordance and importantly does not define the spatial relationship of the great arteries, which can be really confusing and something I actually was mistaken in believing early on in my training but rather the D terminology versus the L terminology, which we'll get to in a second, specifically refers to the looping of the ventricles and again distinguishes DTGA from LTGA or what we will also call congenitally corrected transposition, where there's also not only an abnormal relationship between the ventricles and the great trunks, but also between the atria and the ventricles. So in DTGA, the most common arterial relationships that the aorta is positioned rightward and anterior to the pulmonary artery but we do see other variants of it. So that's why we kind of distinguish what D and L are referring to. There are other anatomic variations in DTGA, which you can see in Dr. Dekodar's video as well. And so this can be DTGA with an intact ventricular septum, which is the most common that we see. DTGA with a ventricular septal defect, and then DTGA with left ventricular outflow tract obstruction. I mean, these anatomic subtypes can lead to variable presentations initially in that immediate neonatal period, and also can pose different challenges in terms of the ultimate surgical repair as well. And then lastly, always something important to highlight, because it's important in the immediate operative period, as well as kind of in the long-term management of these patients as adults, is that the arrangement of the coronary arteries can be highly variable, and that can pose, again, challenges in terms of surgical technique, um, especially with the arterial switch operation, which is our current gold standard of care. And it also can obviously pose challenges down the road when you experience acquired coronary artery disease. And so the most common or what you'll often hear called usual arrangement is the left coronary artery coming off the anterior facing sinus and then the right coronary artery coming off the posterior facing sinus. Dr. Jokudar, I don't know if you have any other thoughts or anything to add in terms of the basics of the anatomy and terminology for DTGA. No, that's fantastic. Fantastic. To me, it's the aorta is hooked up to the right ventricle and vice versa, uh, left ventricle connected to the pulmonary artery. So like you said, ventricular arterial discordance and not compatible with survival unless something is done or you have appropriate mixing early on. Thanks so much. 
Bryn and Dr. Joe Kadar. And just in the spirit of what we've been doing in the series, we've actually been thinking a lot about roadmaps and kind of how we get from one place to another, given you know such non-traditional anatomy. So just to be clear, if I'm a red blood cell coming back from the feet, what's my path through the lungs and back again? Um, yeah, of course. You know, it could be very confusing. So we'll go through kind of just the basics. But in DTGA, you have normal systemic venous return to the right atrium. So your blue blood cell or your red blood cell, whichever you prefer, is coming back to the right atrium, going through the tricuspid valve to the right ventricle. And then this is kind of where it switches from your normal anatomy. So you have desaturated blood, then subsequently exiting the right ventricle via the aorta and then going to the systemic circulation. And on the other side of the heart, you have oxygenated blood coming back from the lungs as you would expect, to the left atrium and across the mitral valve to the left ventricle. However, it then exits the pulmonary valve back into the pulmonary circulation. So essentially, you have deoxygenated blood recirculating in the systemic circulation and oxygenated blood recirculating within the pulmonary circulation. And as Dr. Jokadar mentioned, you obviously have to have some sort of connection between the pulmonary and systemic circulations to allow for mixing so that you don't experience profound cyanosis that wouldn't be survivable past that immediate postnatal period. That was so helpful, Brent. Thank you so much, especially for our visual folks like myself. You know, so essentially you end up with two parallel circuits instead of two circuits in series. And Dr. Jokadar, you know, we talked about how you can have shunts or defects at different levels to allow mixing. So that way, instead of having a completely blue circuit and a completely red circuit, you know, you can have some mixing and have some purple blood going both ways. Dr. Jokadar, can you just maybe briefly touch on the significance of defects at different levels? Like is a defect at the atrial level provide the same value as a defect at the ventricular level or at the arterial level at the PDA? You know, do they all do the same thing or do they have different values for our patient's ultimate clinical manifestation? Depends on how big it is, obviously. I mean, if you have a big atrial septal defect, then that'll provide for adequate mixing. And oftentimes in infants who are not mixing well, you'll create an atrial septal defect. And for the interventional folks in the crowd, you go from the leg, get go across the ASD, inflate a balloon, and pull back and create an atrial septostomy to allow for appropriate mixing as an emergency procedure early on in life. A ventricular septal defect can provide mixing, although sometimes you'll see a streaming effect where even though there's a big hole, blood preferentially does not mix. We see that a fair amount. And early in life, Bryn can tell us more about this. You know, you use prostaglandin to keep the ductus open to allow for mixing at that level as well. Ultimately, I actually have patients who are in their 40s and 50s with unrepaired transposition. Who are, it's incredibly unusual. But those folks have, have appropriate mixing and were born in an era before heart surgery was common and available in many parts of rural America. But yeah, so it, it sort of depends on where it is and how big it is. That's awesome. So, you know, the value of defects here really is to provide bidirectional flow and adequate mixing. And it sounds like the atrial level, you know, you might get more bidirectional flow and mixing as whereas with the ventricular and arterial level, you may have, you know, because of larger pressure differences, more predominantly unilateral mixing. And the therapeutic maneuvers could be to create an atrial septostomy to help uh, augment that mixing, as well as using prostaglandin to maintain a patent ductus arteriosus, again, to also help that mixing. Brent, did you have something to add to that? Yeah, just there are a couple school of thoughts. And I think obviously you're, you can be a little bit biased by the way you're trained, but we will see the different variations of DTGA, especially in that immediate neonatal period and kind of how they can present in terms of their physiology quite differently. And I've always been taught that 
if you can choose any variant, it's having DTGA with an intact ventricular septum and a decent-sized atrial level shunt. And that's where we think predominantly a lot of the mixing occurs, at least in a successful fashion, to get you, you know, that couple of days postnatally before we do the arterial switch operation. But what we consider in terms of the presence of a PDA or an arterial level communication is that it actually improves your effective pulmonary blood flow. So allowing the deoxygenated blood to appropriately go from the aorta to the pulmonary bed and get oxygenated and come back. So it can help with cyanosis, but there's a little bit of a debate as to whether or not true mixing occurs and, you know, blood kind of going back and forth and actually improving the oxygen content of the blood there. And then with the VSD, kind of Dr. Jorkadar mentioned, sometimes we'll see variably that they don't mix well if they don't have a sizable atrial level communication as well. And so we have to open up that atrial septum with the BAS, which is, again, something that we actually pretty regularly still see is required in the postnatal period. I think one of the cool things is that we can now oftentimes predict that a BAS will be required with fetal echocardiograms and looking at the flow patterns across that atrial septum in utero and predicting whether or not it'll be restrictive or not. So oftentimes we can have that therapy ready at bedside in the NICU within the first couple hours of life, um, knowing that it's probably going to be a restrictive septum. Wow, that was beautiful. You know, the hemodynamics are fascinating. Now, Bryn, you know, my wife is a NICU fellow and I, I was telling her, sometimes I tell her about my patients and I'll be talking about like a 50-year-old. She's like, oh my gosh, your patients are so old. I'll ask her, how old are your patients? She's like, two hours, three days, maybe. A 20-day infant is like, a, you know, that's like our geriatric side. I'm not used to thinking about these initial moments for the newborns. Do you mind uh, walking us through, you know, how the newborns might initially present uh, with DTGA and what are some of the strategies you use to manage them? Of course. You know, when you guys asked a group of the ACHD fellows and pediatric cardiology fellows to participate in this podcast and our choice of uh, lesion, if we were allowed to get it, I was hoping to get DTGA and was excited to be able to participate because it is one of my favorite forms of congenital heart disease. And I think that's because to some extent, if you look at the medical and surgical management that has evolved over the past couple of decades, it's been pretty progressive and the survival of these patients has improved correspondingly. So it's something that we can now tell parents in that initial neonatal period that the long-term survivability and the long-term outcomes are quite favorable if we can operate successfully in that immediate postnatal period. But as we can briefly review before, prior to surgical correction, the physiology in these patients is that of a paracirculation, like you alluded to, with the oxygenated blood recirculating the systemic circulation and oxygenated blood recirculating in the pulmonary circulation. So at birth, this invariably results in cyanosis with the survival of these patients dependent upon adequate mixing of the two circulations. And like we talked about, this is predominantly through an HO level defect, but mixing can occur in those patients who do also have a ventricular septal defect. And so as a result, kind of prior to surgical advances, and this is looking back into the 1950s, 1960s, this lesion was actually uniformly fatal. And most infants would die within a couple, sometimes within that first couple days of life and oftentimes not surviving beyond the first year of life. Um, and they initially were bridging these patients to try to get them to survive for just even just a couple of years with the BAS, allowing for improved HO level mixing. But then subsequently in the 1950s and 1960s, they developed the sending and mustard HO level repairs, which led to actually much improved immediate term outcomes and improved long-term survival as well. But, you know, as we'll get to in the kind of heart of this podcast is the long-term complications still remain and are things that are ongoing in terms of what we're trying to improve with these patients as adults. Um, and I'll go through the briefs of these HO level repairs. They're slightly different, but kind of the same result in physiology. So in the sending procedure... A baffle is created within the atria that redirects basically the deoxygenated blood that's coming back from your SVC and your IVC to the mitral valve. And then the oxygenated pulmonary venous blood is redirected correspondingly to the tricuspid valve. 
with use actually in the stunning procedure of native atrial tissue. Mustard kind of then piggybacked on this and tried to design a little bit simpler surgical technique with creation of an atrial baffle using synthetic patch material and kind of becomes, I think, predominantly in my practice and, and what I've seen at Stanford, a more common approach and a more common patient population that we're seeing having the mustard operation performed. Um, and so these are, again, term kind of physiologic type of repairs. Obviously, you're not fixing everything in terms of the connections completely, but you're improving in terms of the pulmonary blood flow and the systemic blood flow going to the appropriate chambers and then out the appropriate chambers, ideally. And so this led, as we kind of alluded to previously, to improvement in initial life expectancy. Um, and as resulted in a good proportion of adults surviving into their 30s, 40s, 50s. And right now, if you look at the population data, there's actually 9,000 patients currently living in the U.S. who have had these atrial level type of repairs. But, you know, as we'll get to again in more detail later, by the late 1980s, late complications of these repairs became known and established. Um, and ultimately, this led to the adoption of the neonatal arterial switch operation which remains the gold standard of surgical management currently for transposition and has much improved the long-term outcomes of these patients as well. Fantastic job. Just a couple of, you know, historical comments that, you, you know, you, you can edit these out if you like, but you know, I'm fascinated with, with the history of medicine. So uh, Aki Senning is a giant in the field of heart surgery. And he was initially at the Karolinska Institute, you know, that little place to hand out the Nobel Prize in Sweden. And so he came up with this idea of doing the atrial switch operation, essentially using the patient's tissues to create origami basically inside the heart to redirect the blood flow, very technically challenging. And then Dr. Mustard, who was actually trained as an orthopedic surgeon and actually has an orthopedic surgery, a hip surgery named after him, trained in heart surgery, and then he simplified it. He's from Toronto and he used a pantaloon-shaped uh, graft patch material to baffle the uh, blood flow in the same manner as the Senning. And then, you know, that was the sort of the standard in the 60s and, and 70s. And then uh, Dr. Adib Jatin in Brazil came up with the uh, arterial switch in 1975 and took a couple of decades because of the very tremendous difficulty with reimplanting the coronary arteries for that to become the primary where uh, these patients are, are, uh, are repaired. Back to Dr. Senning. There's a beautiful story of Dr. Senning. So he was initially at the Karolinska, and then he went to Zurich. And while he was at Zurich, he met this brash interventional radiologist with a big mustache and an even bigger ego who had this crazy idea of inflating balloons in coronary arteries absolutely ludicrous. And we're obviously talking about Andreas Grunzig. He had done it in pigs and he was getting ready to do it in the first human. And there was complete uproar in the hospital in Zurich. No one wanted to do it. No one would let him do it until Dr. Senning said, let the young man try. The rest is history. Also, Dr. Senning provided surgical backup for Grunzig in the first cases that were done in Zurich. And if you look at the 1979 New England Journal paper, it's Grunzig and Senning on that paper describing the first 50 angioplasty patients. So the history of cardiology and the history of congenital heart disease go hand in hand. And there are many examples that go beyond, you know, I could talk about this all day. But, you know, to me, this is a beautiful and fascinating history of medicine. <laughs> Dr. Chokodara, as a podcaster, I've, I've, I feel speechless. I'm collecting my thoughts. And if you can make a podcaster speechless... It's quite the feat. But we, we too love medical history. It's a story of how we got here and it sheds light on where we should go. And you're talking about Dr. Grunzig 
and angioplasty. And I believe he did that for the first time. And I might have to delete this if I'm wrong, but I think it was 1977. That's right. 1977. It was six years prior to that, that Dr. Eugene Brunwald published in Circulation, an article about the, the possibility of limiting infarct size. And we just launched the Brunwald Chronicles, and I think it's chapter five, where he goes into the open artery hypothesis and how he came up with that. So it's all intertwined. And earlier in that series, he talked about his work with... Um, so earlier in his career at the NIH, Dr. Morrow asked Dr. Brunwald, tell me how I can size an ASD. If you can tell me how big an ASD is, before I get in the OR, if it's small enough, I can go in and out in a matter of minutes. And, and then I can do it when they're still very young. But if it's too big and I have to use a pericardial patch, then it would be highly morbid and I, morbid and I wouldn't do that. And so that's how Dr. Brunwald came up with a technique to size an ASD with a balloon. So it's, it's all intertwined and it's, the history is beautiful. So thank you for taking us through that. And Bryn, you know, we started off with you talking about how you ended up doing this amazing job on this episode and how TGA is your favorite defects. So you were hoping to get that. And the side conversation me and Josh were having like, wow, what a nerd. So that's a huge compliment coming from us. Welcome to the Cardi Nerds family. So with all that, you know, just thinking we went through the atrial switch and that led to complications. And throughout this whole series, we're thinking in for all of our defects to think about three questions, right? What is a structural abnormality? What is a hemodynamic consequence? And what are the clinical sequelae? And it sounds like at least for the adult cardiologist, we're not going to see unrepaired DTGA, right? We will de facto be seeing surgically repaired DTGA. And given that the atrial switch was the predominant form of surgical repair for most of our adult patients, right, just, you know, from, from that timeline, the question really is, well, the structural abnormality is the repair itself. And so what are the hemodynamic consequences of the structural repair and what are the clinical sequelae of that? Let's review a particularly interesting case to better highlight the long-term complications of the mustard and sending operations, our structural abnormalities here. Josh, Let's talk about your patient from the Cardinals ACHD clinic. Sure. So Jessica Jones is a 23-year-old female with a history of detransposition of the great arteries with a ventricular septal defect, for which she underwent an initial balloon atrial septostomy in the newborn period, followed by a sending atrial switch operation at two weeks of life. She was subsequently followed regularly by her pediatric cardiologist without any known postoperative complications and now presents for transition of care. She reports progressive exercise intolerance for the past few years, although otherwise denies any cardiopulmonary symptoms. She cannot recall if any prior evaluation was performed for her symptoms, although believes she was diagnosed with an abnormal heart rhythm in the past. How might an adult patient initially present to care following ascending or mustard atrial switch operation? What are the long-term outcomes of this type of repair? Yeah, as in other forms of congenital heart disease, patients are frequently lost to follow-up in early adulthood and may not experience any significant symptoms and or other complications within that initial 10 to 15 years following their repair. However, patients remain at risk for substantial morbidity, as we kind of previously alluded to, as well as premature mortality in the long term. Um, with the most common long-term complications that we'll see in clinic being the systemic right ventricular dysfunction, tricuspid regurgitation, um, both Brady and tachyarrhythmias, and then systemic and or pulmonary venous baffle leaks and obstruction. And um, so patients often present to care with basically symptomatic manifestations of these complications. And so that can include symptomatic heart failure with, you know, shortness of breath, dyspnea on exertion, orthopnea, and they can have decreased exercise tolerance, which is a common manifestation that we see throughout their care. Syncope, which again can be arrhythmic in nature and or related to their heart failure. 
and then even sudden cardiac death. So patients who do, though, have routine follow-up care and go on to transition from their pediatric cardiologist to ACHD, oftentimes will have more subtle and subclinical disease manifestations early on. So we might see on serial imaging that they'll have systemic RV dilation that progresses over the lifespan, eventually to include having dysfunction of that right ventricle. And they might have reduced objective exercise capacity when we put them through cardiopulmonary exercise testing, but it may not manifest symptomatically for a little while into their early adulthood or even later adulthood period. And then Dr. Jokodar, since you've been doing this much longer than I have, do you mind touching on the kind of long-term outcomes of this type of repair? So it depends on the era, I think. So patients who were done earlier, there may have been a learning curve initially, do very differently than when the surgery was perfected and surgical technique was improved compared to patients who were in the later phases of the sending or the mustard. This being said, you know, we have a lot of patients who are doing really well. There's a lot of things we have to, you know, keep an eye on, obviously. You know, a lot of these patients have arrhythmia. A lot of these patients have pacemaker, right ventricle dysfunction. And we can talk about the medical therapy and management of these patients. We have had patients who required advanced heart failure therapy, whether elevator transplant. And we've had patients who unfortunately passed away. But the vast majority of our patients who we're following on a regular basis appear to be doing well. But the long-term morbidity and mortality is a big problem still. Yes, thank you for that, Dr. Jokadar. You know, for the typical patient on cardiomyopathy, when a patient comes with symptoms that may be referred to the cardiovascular system, we've grown to think about hitting the five failures, right, in terms of evaluating what the cause is. Myocardial failure, valvular failure, coronary failure, I would say coronary and vascular failure, pericardial failure, and electrical failure. It sounds like patients who were born with DTGA status post mustard or sending repair, we can think of a, a different cohort of failures that are similar, right? Myocardial failure of the systemic RV, valvular failure with functional tricuspid regurgitation, which is now the systemic AV valve, electrical failure with either bradyarrhythmias or tachyarrhythmias, and then we have this whole discussion about how to get devices in them for ICD leads and or these pacemaker leads. But the additional failure to consider here, and I think this is probably a construct for all of ACHD, is baffle or conduit failure, right? You can get stenosis or leaks, and they have their own manifestations and different approaches. Speaking of myocardial failure, uh, Bryn, how common is systemic RV dysfunction following the atrial switch procedure? And is the underlying physiology known? Yeah, so I mean, it's something that we commonly see in the kind of ACHD time period. So oftentimes, if these patients are just past that initial transition period in late adolescence or early adulthood, they may not have, again, significant RV dysfunction. And we may see that the RV is already dilated on more advanced imaging, but oftentimes their um, contractility seems to remain preserved. And it's kind of more later in that next 10 to 20 year period where we start to see kind of subtle declines in their right ventricular ejection fraction over time. But we do kind of see um, RV dysfunction as an inevitable consequence of that atrial switch operation. And if you look at the literature, which there's some great actually now long-term studies looking at 39 years of follow-up um, as these patients get older and older and continue to have improved outcomes. And the quoted incidence of RV dysfunction is about 50%. And those patients typically, again, it can be you know, you know New York Heart Association class 2 heart failure, so they may not be significantly symptomatic yet, but that does progress across the lifespan as well. And that's about 30 years of follow-up that they're quoting that number. In some patients, you can get earlier systemic RV dysfunction for sure, and we don't know the exact etiology for it, but it's hypothesized that this may reflect more of myocardial damage that was sustained in that periop period 
So from either prolonged cyanosis with the delayed surgical repairs that were incurred earlier in the surgical eras and interoperatively from bypass-related effects, although I think that's not as strongly believed as the latter. But the majority of these patients, again, do not present with symptomatic systemic RV dysfunction to that 15 to 20-year period postoperatively. And the pathophysiology for kind of the later presentations is thought to reflect development of systemic RV dysfunction in the setting of myocardial ischemia that's more related to uh, mismatch in your myocardial oxygen demand and supply. And that could be through a smaller right coronary system that's not meant to handle the same as the left coronary system usually in terms of getting good myocardial blood flow. And this actually has been reproduced in studies that are looking, you know, through advanced imaging at myocardial perfusion defects, for example, on stress imaging. And it seems to also predominantly occur at sites of significant RV hypertrophy, which is obviously a compensatory mechanism that the RV undergoes when it's facing continual systemic afterload. Other things that they've kind of found in the literature is potentially differences in ventricular geometry. So the RV is more kind of triangular shaped, and that might be less well suited to sustain and adapt over time to systemic afterload when you compare it to kind of the bullet shaped left ventricle. And then they've also looked at actually dysynchrony between the RV and the LV, and that that may be kind of increased or more observed that you get mechanical RV dysynchrony in a systemic RV. I know that there's also one of the sort of contemporary concerns with sort of the arterial switch procedure whenever we get to it is that like an LV that is only handling sort of a pulmonary vascular resistance actually becomes somewhat deconditioned, I believe, right? And so the thought there is, is that, you know, we actually do some banding to the PA so that we can generate some strength and try and get sort of the ventricle sort of like oomph back or keep its oomph, so to speak, very technical terms on a cardiovascular podcast, but oomph is perfect to keep it ready with the idea that, you know, it's the ventricle that's going to potentially be eventually facing the systemic vascular resistance. It's just the idea of conditioning and handling what it's meant to handle, I think just is an important consideration on both sides. But yeah, the right side has always been fascinating to me and obviously the first one you think of. Yeah, this gets very profound, right? We're all born with a purpose in life and it's the lucky person that finds their purpose. And it's the same thing with the ventricles. They're born with a purpose in life. And if there's a mismatch there, then it's not good in either direction. Uh, but we need a way to assess for that. So Dr. Jokadar, what is your typical approach to evaluation of a systemic RV size and function? I tell you, assessing RV function in general, not just in the transposition, in general, assessing RV function, I find incredibly challenging. And like everything with cardiology, you don't rely on just one thing. You rely on all of it. You rely on what the echo looks like. You rely on what the valve looks like, the size and hypertrophy. You can use MRI to look for delayed gadolinium enhancements and scarring and to calculate the ejection fraction. Although I don't know how helpful the ejection fraction really is. That sounds sacrilegious, but, uh, you know, EF Schmief, I'm sorry, you know, <laughs> but I've been humbled so many times by, you know, sometimes the, the, the only proof is to get an systemic RV EDP. And your EF may be normal, but if your systemic RV EDP is 35, 40, you know that ventricle is in bad shape. And so I've been humbled more times than I could tell you about our inadequacy of assessing RV function. That being said, I think you can get a general picture by how the patient is doing what the EKG looks like, you know, how wide that QRS is important. You, you always have, with a mustard, you almost always have a small atrial electrical P wave or a pacemaker in that area and a tall R waves in V1, RVH. And you can pretty well look at the duration of that QRS. So you use physical exam, history, EKG, you use the echo. 
We use myocardial strain. We use uh, TAPSI. We use all that stuff. And we use, you know, cardiac MRI, depending on the situation. But sometimes the only way to know is to do the RVEDP and, and assess the cardiac output. It sounds like you, you really got to go top to bottom, you know, every time to make sure you have a full understanding. Can't rely on one thing. And if I might add, the interaction between the heart and the rest of the body. So you can't just look at the heart in isolation. Congenital heart disease is a multi-system problem. So if you have superimposed liver disease from liver congestion, you got to look at that. Obviously, anemia, pulmonary pressures, you have to look at the whole, at the whole picture, at the whole patient, the whole person. Thank you. Continuing on in the idea of, you know, I'm an adult cardiology fellow coming from the adult cardiology world, trying to learn about congenital heart defects in adults. You know, I am used to having a zillion trials to provide me evidence to back me up about clinical decisions that I make about therapy. You know, 10,000 patient enrollment in like knowing about what the benefits of SGLT2 inhibitors are, what ACE inhibitors are, what, what the benefit of beta blockers are. Do we know about any benefits of traditional goal-directed medical therapies for patients who rely on a systemic RV or have systemic RV dysfunction? Um, yes, I could speak to a little bit, you know, having spent a couple of years in pediatric cardiology now, you know, where there's no data um, other than, you know, looking at surgical techniques and very short-term outcomes. There is a little bit of data in terms of looking at the long-term outcomes of these patients and kind of like we alluded to previously, some we now have data looking at 30 upwards of 40 years of outcomes. And so we can see how medical therapy has been used in this patient population and the potential benefits of it there. But when you contrast it to other forms of cardiomyopathy, specifically ischemic cardiomyopathy, there are no long-term randomized placebo-controlled trials evaluating the efficacy of these therapies. And specifically, like you mentioned, looking at ACE inhibitors and ARBs and beta blockers um, on improving systemic RV function. Um, The small studies that we do have that have been performed to date do not show any appreciable benefit specifically of ACE inhibitor ARB therapy on improving RV systolic function or actually a patient's objective exercise capacity. And this is hypothesized, at least in that paper, to be that these patients may not have significant activation of the red and angiotensin aldosterone system as we do see in ischemic heart failure. Um, But this has not been clearly established as the reason that these patients patients are typically non-responders. On the other hand, beta blocker therapy was also initially felt to be promising um, because it has the potential to reduce myocardial oxygen demand, allow for improved ventricular filling, which are important in this patient population because they have a fixed atrial capacitance, especially with their baffles. But prior studies have shown pretty mixed results with evidence of improvement in RV remodeling in some studies, as well as some studies suggesting that you do get slight improvement in your RV systolic function. Um, Although some other studies have also found the complete opposite with the RBEF remaining unchanged and kind of gradually deteriorating over time, as we'll commonly see, um, and not seeing any kind of improvement in their functional capacity or long-term survival as well. Although I think as Dr. Jeffrey might say, it's also, it's so hard to assess the RV function over time that some of the lack of improvement in these therapies may also be that we're not capturing it. And it's kind of subtle changes that are actually improvements that we can't really delineate on the imaging we have so far. Dr. Jokado, I don't know if you have kind of in your experience with these. You know, as you know, there are no real good clinical trial data in this area. We have limited retrospective analyses. Dr. Dugan here at Emory when he was here at Emory, he published a retrospective analysis of beta blockers showing, you know, improved clinical outcomes in a retrospective analysis. You know, the only clinical trial that I could find was a small clinical trial using aplerinone from Barcelona in patients with detransposition and atrial switch, systemic RV. And then they didn't have enough patients to generate a lot of hard outcomes. 
uh, and they used surrogate outcomes. So we have to be careful with using surrogate outcomes. Uh, but there are surrogate outcomes were uh, BNP and, or was it NC prone B? I don't remember. And biomarkers of inflammation and scarring. And in this small study, it did appear to be a signal that a pleronone was beneficial in this group. Again, you have to be careful. We use a lot of extrapolation of heart failure data in the congenital world, and it's another leap to go to the systemic right ventricle. That being said, anecdotally, uh, in my own experience, I do think beta blockers are quite valuable, but first you have to control congestion. And heart failure in general, no medicine will work unless you control congestion first. And then beta blockers. Also anecdotally, most of our patients don't tolerate ACE inhibitors or ARBs. They tend to have more side effects with them. And, you know, that was sort of the teaching from years ago that it could be related to the stiff baffles and the limited atrial capacitance, that they don't tolerate this. I don't have a great explanation otherwise, except anecdotally, patients don't tend to do well with ACE inhibitors. Although I do have a small cohort of these patients who I have on ARNI therapy, Secubitril Valsartan, who seem to be doing well and tolerating this. So no two patients are the same. You got a trial and error, hopefully more trial and less error, and follow the patient closely. Uh, and don't be afraid to use new therapies, including SGLTs that we've been using more in this population, SGLT2 inhibitors. Yeah, I'm loving all this conversations about RV. You know, on the podcast in the past, we've talked about ARVC. RV failure in high output states, RV failure from pulmonary hypertension, RV failure from ischemia and infarction. But I've got to ask you, Dr. Jokadar, as an ACHE specialist, uh, what goes on in your mind when you hear general adult cardiologists refer to as RV as a forgotten ventricle? No one has told that to my face. <laughs> it's, uh, it's such a different way of thinking. I think about it every day. I, I, I've not, I've not heard that expression told to me, but, but I don't doubt it. Yeah. I don't doubt it. Yeah, all ventricles have an equal opportunity in uh, AC. Equal ventricle uh, opportunists. Equal ventricle opportunities. Yep. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. In my experience with boxing, you're only ventricles, so you don't have a choice. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's great. With your, with your haploplast patients and, yep. Absolutely. So, in thinking about the role of medical guideline-directed therapies for a failing systemic RV, you know, just thinking about other GDMT therapies available, what is the role of CRT device therapy? So yes, but rarely. And let me tell you why. In order to resynchronize a systemic right ventricle in a D transposition, you need epicardial leads, okay? Whereas in L transposition, congenital corrected transposition, you can go coronary sinus. And the explanation for that is the coronary sinus always drains into the right atrium. So if you think about it, you know, you're not going to be able to resynchronize a detransposition mustard using a coronary sinus. You have to put epicardial leads, you have to take them to surgery, and the morbidity associated with that. That being said, in the handful of patients that we've resorted to this, it seems to anecdotally be beneficial with improvement in ejection sometimes dramatic improvement. And uh, there's one patient in particular I'm thinking about with absolute dramatic, went from almost, you know, transplant listing to, you know, mild symptoms and reduction in RV size. But again, this is anecdotal. Whereas in congenital corrective transposition, we are very aggressive with early device therapy in these patients, particularly resynchronization. So 
we've talked a lot about sort of choosing therapies and sort of difficulty in sort of figuring out which patients therapies will be effective in given sort of a lack of evidence that's been generated in the field. Do you have any specific threshold for initiation of certain therapies with or without, you know, RV dysfunction seen on imaging. We know that RV dysfunction can remain subclinical for long periods of time, especially in this patient population where the story that we've heard time and time again is that patients often resist exerting themselves to sort of a maximal capacity and they kind of live within their physiologic thresholds because that's all they've ever known. So our, and this may be our center specific practice. I can't speak generally, but we tend to be more aggressive with beta blockers when we start seeing problems, you know, particularly if you start, and again, assessing the RV is difficult, but if you start seeing worsening tricuspid regurgitation, you know, that's, that's a clue. And then you got to use, we use beta blockers in that setting. And sometimes we will, you know, bradycardia and sick sinus syndrome is common in these patients. And so in order to tolerate up titrating beta blockers, sometimes we'll place an atrial and just an atrial pacemaker in these folks in order to allow us to uptitrate beta blocker therapy. And again, our anecdotal experience has been positive, but, you know, sprinkle some salt on that. Uh, you take that with a grain of salt. But so beta blockers, it seems to be our mainstay. But again, after you control congestion, someone's swollen, you got to get rid of the swelling first. Great. Thank you so much for that. And so, you know, I think at this point, we can acknowledge that there are limitations to medical heart failure management for these systemic RVs. It sounds like, you know, we've had some anecdotal experience about therapies that work or don't work, but obviously, you know, there's heterogeneity in the patient population. Is there any role for some of the more traditional things we think about with tricuspid regurgitation with regard to like a tricuspid valve repair as like a surgical management for RV volume unloading? Yeah, so tricuspid regurgitation, specifically in DTGA, there's a couple of things that we feel contribute to it. So if you compare it to, you know, other forms of RV failure, when you get progressive RV dilation and then kind of a failure of central coaptation, we definitely can see that in DTGA as well as the systemic RV dilates and becomes dysfunctional over time. But then kind of more unique to DTGA, there's specifically abnormal ventricular interactions. And so you get bowing of the interventricular septum from that high pressure right ventricle towards the low pressure left ventricle. And so this actually causes displacement of that septal leaf of the tricuspid valve and also contributes to the co-optation failure. So it's not just kind of that central jet of tricuspid regurgitation that we'll see. It can also be something that's a little bit more peripheral. And so there have actually been studies looking at using surgical techniques to address it. I think one of the interesting approaches is using PA banding. And you, Josh alluded this to the use of PA banding for LV kind of retraining. And it, you know, works in the same process by increasing supplemonic LV afterload. But this is predominantly to lead to those geometric changes in the position of the interventricular septum, which then can correspondingly reduce tricuspid regurgitation. Um, I think many people, and Dr. Jagadar can correct me if I'm wrong, would consider this to be more palliative in nature, but we can, and I have it seen very rarely used in older patients who've had progressive RV dysfunction and tricuspid regurgitation despite more maximal medical therapies as a kind of bridge just to improve their symptoms and quality of life. And then, I don't know, Dr. Jagadar, if you can touch on more other surgical techniques in terms of tricuspid valvuloplasty and or tricuspid valve replacement as well. That's fantastic. So yes, pulmonary artery banding is very rarely resorted to. And there was a fad, a vogue, really, if, if you will, of retraining LVs about 20 years ago or so. And we have a number of patients who went that route and had their ventricles trained by placing pulmonary artery bands. The problem is the band is either 
too loose or too tight. And by putting a pulmonary artery band, you know, you can pressurize the pulmonary valve and damage the pulmonary valve. So we see a lot of pulmonary valve regurgitation after a pulmonary artery band. Now, anecdotally, when we do see a pressurized LV for other reasons, like in dynamic obstruction, some of these patients, because of the, as you alluded to, the, the RV septum is unbolstered by a low pressure LV. When that LV is pressurized by having uh, dynamic LVOT obstruction of the subpulmonary ventricle, that can support the right ventricle. And anecdotally, those patients seem to do better. And again, that supports the tricuspid apparatus and reduces the uh, tricuspid regurgitation. When it comes to addressing tricuspid regurgitation surgically in patients with detransposition, atrial switch, and systemic right ventricles, it tends to be a ventricular problem. It tends to be a functional problem a lot of the time and not something intrinsically related to the tricuspid valve leaflets. On a few patients where that has been the problem, we have we have referred these patients for surgery and usually associated with other, you know, baffle revision, et cetera. This is very different than congenitally corrected transposition with systemic right ventricle and a dysplastic tricuspid valve. Those patients, I think most would be more aggressive with addressing the tricuspid valve surgically. So we have to think about the systemic tricuspid valve depending on the lesion. Great. Thanks so much. So let's get back to Miss Jessica Jones. So a cardiac MRI was ordered, which showed preserved RV size and systolic function and no significant tricuspid regurgitation. There was, however, notable evidence of subpulmonic outflow tract obstruction, although this appeared to be stable when compared to prior imaging. However, a subsequent halter monitor demonstrated several episodes of non-sustained ventricular tachycardia at rates up to 180 beats per minute. We touched on this a little earlier, but what do we know about arrhythmias following the atrial switch operation? Yeah, so arrhythmias are pretty commonly observed and actually the most frequently observed adverse event following the atrial switch operation. And looking at kind of the studies that, again, have looked at 30, 40-year outcomes in this patient population, they've actually quoted only 40 to 50% of these patients remaining in normal sinus rhythm at that 50 to 20-year mark. And this can kind of change in terms of what arrhythmias predominate over the lifespan. So in the first 10 to 15 years, oftentimes we'll see bradyarrhythmias um, with development of SA node dysfunction that, you know, in the past has been attributed predominantly to ischemic injury that occurs at the time of surgery. So that could be from, you know, surgical scar-related fibrosis, suture lines, for example. And this is what we think predominantly is the ongoing contributor to SA node dysfunction in the long term as well. And this obviously causes a significant amount of chronotropic incompetence with up to 20% of these patients ultimately requiring pacemaker replacement, as Dr. Jokudar alluded to. And also something that becomes interesting when you discuss beta blocker therapy in this patient population, knowing that even if they haven't manifested evidence of SA node dysfunction, that it's something that they almost inevitably, if you you could make that argument, will experience in the long term. So on the other side of it, atrial tachyarrhythmias are also commonly observed and both in the immediate postoperative period as well as a little bit later on postoperatively. And this, this ultimately ends up affecting about 50% of the patient population in the long term, uh, based on the studies we have to date. Um, the types of arrhythmias that we see are typically are reentered in nature, so atrial flutter and then more focal reentrant circulations. Um, and then the underlying risk factors for the development of these tachyarrhythmias, again, we think are likely multifactorial with atrial enlargement occurring in the setting of tricuspid regurgitation, suture line related fibrosis, and then also just kind of the hemodynamic stress associated with systemic RV failure. Dr. Junkard, I was wondering if you could touch a little bit on the long-term outcomes from arrhythmias and specifically the association that we've seen with sudden cardiac death. 
sick sinus syndrome and atrial arrhythmia are both related quite closely to adverse outcomes. Needing a pacemaker is associated with, not necessarily getting a pacemaker, but needing a pacemaker is associated with adverse outcome. And these atrial arrhythmia in particular tends to be risk factors for sudden death. So we're pretty aggressive with pacemaker therapy, not as much as we used to be with ICD therapy for these patients, but we do use you know, a fair amount of you know, beta blockers for the antirhythmic effects and uh, antirhythmics. Now, why is that? Why would sick sinus syndrome or arrhythmia be a marker of bad outcomes? I think these are surrogates for scarring and fibrosis. So if you have a lot of scarring, you're more likely to have conduction disease. If you have more scarring, you're more likely to have reentrant arrhythmia, intraatrial arrhythmia, and AFib, flutter, et cetera. And, you know, these patients, we typically start with antirhythmic therapy, but we have excellent electrophysiology. Dr. Lloyd here at Emory does a lot of our congenital arrhythmia, and he's developed quite an expertise in this field. And so we have a low threshold for referring to him for management of arrhythmia. Yeah, this is a great conversation about the different types of electrical failures his patients can have with bradyarrhythmias, supraventricular tachyarrhythmias, ventricular tachyarrhythmias, and the ensuing risks of sudden cardiac death. We talked a little bit about some antiarrhythmic options for these. I imagine there's a role for catheter ablation and obviously device therapy. Bryn, can you talk a little bit about ICD placement for primary and secondary prevention in these patients? Yeah, so um, it'd be interesting to see what Dr. Jokadar thinks as well in terms of it's a little bit controversial and we don't have as robust of data uh, definitely when compared to ischemic heart disease and also when compared to other forms of congenital heart disease that we've been lucky to have some criteria that have come out for placement of ICDs and particularly in tetralogy of FOLO is um, commonly used the carry data to um, look at when we place ICDs in that patient population. But he's actually done similar work on the DDGA population and and have found that what the established risk factors in his mind for potential sudden cardiac death, predominantly from what we think are atrial arrhythmias, then kind of degrading into ventricular arrhythmias, leading to ultimate sudden cardiac death are kind of a prior history, therefore, of syncope and or a prior history of documented ventricular arrhythmias. But, you know, this comes with a caveat that even if you have those established risk factors, placement of an ICD isn't, you know, 100% guarantee as it is in any patient population. So he's actually similarly observed in patients with DTGA who have undergone ICD placement that there's an increased risk of inappropriate shocks. Um, actually, 7% of patients in the study he did received inappropriate shocks and kind of he hypothesized that this was because of their younger age. So they might be more physically active than our older patient populations, that they, you know, have coexisting SVT too, that could be potentially misinterpreted as ventricular arrhythmias. And then they're also, as you guys kind of talked about before, at higher risk for lead malfunction. I'm going to say that they're complex anatomy, especially when you're placing these through baffles, for example. And then kind of unfortunately, on the other hand, not just the increased rate of inappropriate shocks, he also found that there was a decreased rate of appropriate shocks in this patient population as well. So, you know, it's a little bit challenging because we don't have clearly established risk factors for when we should put the ICDs in. And then the placement of an ICD is not a guarantee that you'll actually successfully terminate these arrhythmias. And I think the, you know, big thing that's always in the back of our mind with all of this is just, you know, if the risk of baffle stenosis is something that we see in the long term. And then if you're putting an ICD lead through that as well, if you're potentially increasing that risk in the long term and given the potential lack of clear benefits, you know, you have to kind of look more at the risk profile as well and whether or not we should be doing this. But Dr. Joker, I don't know in your experience, patients that you've referred for ICD placement, kind of looking at their outcomes and any complications they experienced. Our understanding continues to evolve in this area. You know, 10 years ago, our practice was very different than it is now. Ten years ago, we were much more aggressive with primary prevention. 
putting in ICDs for people with ventricular dysfunction and severe systemic tricuspid valve regurgitation. And, you know, as as the carry data and the, and the carry papers tell us, these patients do have inappropriate shocks. But are they really inappropriate? We have atrial arrhythmia, and we know that portends bad outcome. And if you cardiovert someone out of an atrial arrhythmia, that is labeled as inappropriate. But we do know those are markers for sudden death. So that being said, you know, these devices are not benign. You know, there's something that we talk about a lot, lead poisoning instead of lead poisoning, lead poisoning. <laughs> you know, we don't, we got to be careful about putting in devices, you know, particularly since the data tell us that they're not particularly effective for primary prevention, you know, ICDs. So most of our devices for sending mustard atrial switches is a single atrial lead with antitachycardia capabilities. But, you know, if there's if there are ventricular arrhythmias or history of syncope, then we'll, we'll put the second lead in, uh, the ICD lead in as well in the subpulmonic left ventricle. Hearing this conversation, I'm reflecting a lot on sort of the typical paradigms that we think about with pacing in the adult population and how sensing in this population is probably sort of like an entirely different phenomenon and sort of trying to fit these devices and the algorithms that are created surrounding, at least in my experience, more adult patients. There are definitely just challenges and translations that I'm sure we could talk about for hours, but you know, it's just kind of interesting to reflect on. It's a cool field you've chosen. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, so far in talking about the approach to repair DTGA patients repaired with a mustard or sending, we've touched on myocardial failure with a systemic right ventricle, valvular failure of a systemic AV valve here, the tricuspid valve, a rich discussion on electrical failure with bradyarrhythmias and tachyarrhythmias. Um, I have to ask, as an aspiring interventional cardiologist, Dr. Jokadar, do you mind just briefly touching on a little bit of the plumbing, the concept of baffle failure with, you know, stenosis or leaks and how that may present what the typical approach is? Yeah, and remind me to talk about coronary failure too in these patients as well. So baffle failure is a very common thing. It's very rare that we have someone with a sending or mustard that does not have at least some baffle leak or some baffle narrowing. So most of our patients will do at least one three-dimensional imaging and, and take a survey of what we're dealing with, particularly if there's problems. If they have no problems at all, we're, we tend to be on the conservative end. But if there's any hint of a problem, we'll get three-dimensional imaging to sort this out. And then followed by hemodynamic assessments as indicated and percutaneous stenting of the SVC, IVC baffle. You got to be careful with this because sometimes there's not a lot of real estate to work with. Because if you open up an SVC or IVC baffle and your pulmonary venous baffle is small, you may end up obstructing the pulmonary venous baffle and causing more problem than you ended up with in the beginning. So, uh, you know, a, a thoughtful multidisciplinary approach is necessary for some of these baffle failures and baffle leaks. And then, you know, sometimes when a percutaneous approach is not doable, you have to think about a surgical approach. And it's unusual, but something that we have referred our patients to on occasion. And then coronary failure. So our patients, we discussed transposition has a lot of, have a lot of coronary anomalies. Now, this is a particular problem for arterial switches, but also it is for our atrial switches as well. We've had a couple that we've required unroofing of a coronary artery and intramural segment of a coronary anomaly. And we've also had patients who've gotten ischemic. There's one patient in particular who had ischemic symptoms and she had an intramyocardial bridge that, you know, we, we really, she was not amenable for surgical intervention and we had to do our best with medicines. But these patients do have coronary problems as well. 
Yeah, you know, it's no wonder why these patients really should be taken care of in a comprehensive center. There's so many nuances to consider. And in reading about different types of baffle failure, I read that, you know, baffle stenosis itself, especially with the, uh, of a superior drainage is associated with sudden cardiac death. And baffle leaks are essentially, they're shunting lesions, right? And so in your volume overload, you can get systemic hypoxemia, refractory to oxygen therapy. You can get a risk for systemic embolism and, you know, strokes. And so there's a lot to consider here. Thank you. All right. So let's get back to our patient. She was ultimately started on medical management with a beta blocker with good overall tolerance. However, she continued to report significant exercise intolerance with subsequent cardiac catheterization notable for severe LVOT obstruction with a peak gradient of 130 millimeters mercury at the site of fibromuscular obstruction. She was therefore referred for surgical evaluation with specific consideration for conversion to an arterial switch operation given her well-trained LV. When would you consider referring your patients for conversion to an arterial switch operation? Are there any defined preoperative criteria that predict the long-term success of this operation? Yeah, so this is not commonly done, as Dr. Jogadar mentioned previously. I feel like at Stanford, we might see it a little bit more commonly because of the double switch operation that we do in CCTGA. So we kind of extrapolate the criteria for being well-trained for a double switch to the criteria potentially for conversion from an atrial level repair to an arterial switch operation. You know, this patient highlights one example of someone who's already well-trained and kind of the other patient that I've actually seen undergo this in the interim was someone who had pulmonary venous baffle obstruction and that was leading to post-capillary pulmonary hypertension. And so she was referred both for potential surgical revision of the pulmonary veins, as well as to convert over and hopefully take down the baffle. Unfortunately, even despite her arterial switch operation, she continues to have pulmonary hypertension. But conversion over to an arterial switch operation does often require, in the absence of a already well-trained left ventricle, kind of more of a staged approach to ensure that that left ventricle is now ready to handle systemic pressures again. And so as you guys mentioned before, it's been pretty well established that the left ventricle becomes rapidly deconditioned over time um, when it's facing just the low resistance pulmonary circulation, and then it loses its ability correspondingly to generate systemic pressures. Um, And so oftentimes you have to do PA banding in this patient population for LV retraining. Although when you look at the data that's been published so far, This is done with pretty variable success rates. Historically, they felt that age was the kind of main determinant as to whether you could be successfully retrained to undergo an arterial switch operation. And that presumably is that you have less compensatory hyperplasia and hypertrophy that I've seen with PA banding that's done more at older ages. Although, again, there's a little bit of discrepancy in the literature, and this has not been consistently reproduced in more recent studies where age was not as important of a factor. And so when you're looking at kind of what criteria you might use to determine if a patient will undergo a successful arterial switch operation post-PA banding, again, kind of there's not great established criteria, but most of this is extrapolated from the CCTGA literature and looking at things like the ability to generate near systemic or systemic LV pressures on cardiac catheterization assessment, the presence of normal LV systolic function, because obviously we found that these patient populations, especially post-PA banding, could develop LV dysfunction, absence of underlying LV diastolic dysfunction, similarly looking at your LV EDP on cardiac catheterization, inadequate LV mass, which we're oftentimes using cardiac MRI to assess, and in the absence of significant AV valve regurgitation as well. So, you know, when we do our CCTGA populations and screen them for undergoing a double switch operation, you know, oftentimes it's looking at serial echoes, but also they'll all get cardiac catheterization and cardiac MRIs along their both pre-banding and post-banding course to determine if we think they'll be successful. And I think we've been, it's specifically, this is just anecdotally at Stanford, 
when we have all that data so far, it correlates with at least the immediate term outcomes post-operatively that they're doing pretty well and we're predicting it pretty successfully. Although obviously this has not been a perfect solution and perfect set of criteria either. I was wondering, kind of Dr. Jokadar, if you've had any experience converting over to arterial switch operation in your patient population, and if there's anything that you've found that's kind of led to poor outcomes in the long term and or kind of more successful conversions as well. So it's been a long time since this was done. You know, there was a body of Italian studies early on with LV training for uh, mustard sending patients. And the Italian subset, the published data were favorable. However, in reality, and at least in our experience, you know, when you try to ban the pulmonary artery, a lot of times you damage the pulmonary valve. And remember, the pulmonary valve is going to be your neo-aortic valve. So you don't want to mess that up. And it's very frequent, at least, you know, in the adults to distort that pulmonary valve and cause problems. And I can think of two patients who had a late switch and both of them required a later neo-aortic valve replacement. Now they have a systemic LV, so maybe it's a good thing. In terms of criteria, you know, I think if you got five reasonable um, congenital specialists, you may get five uh, unreasonable answers on this question. <laughs> I don't know that I have a strong opinion except proceed with caution. Yeah, it sounds like there is a lot of nuance here and a lot goes into this discussion about converting to an arterial switch operation for somebody who's had an atrial switch operation and the stars have to align and we certainly don't want unreasonable answers. So alternatively, what are your thoughts about uh, transplant evaluation? So we have pursued advanced heart failure therapy in a number of our sending mustard patients including LVAT therapy to the systemic right ventricle and transplant on several of our patients. And, you know, the difficulties with transplant in general is you got to get real sick. You got to get multiple hospitalization, inotrope dependent, in order to be able to move forward with heart transplantation. There are provisions for systemic RVs providing an advantage, but I think that goes beyond the scope of today's talk. But to answer the question, when someone has recurrent hospitalizations for decompensated heart failure, when there are no good, you know, options for medical therapy, and, you know, when they don't have severe end organ damage, liver disease, pulmonary hypertension, et cetera, then I think it's reasonable to proceed with transplantation. And like I said, we've, we've done this on a number of our patients. Thank you so much, Dr. Jokadar, for that insight. I think the threshold for transplant in congenital heart disease is something that at least I'm following with great interest. Uh, and we're planning to have an episode, you know, focused on mechanical circulatory support and, you know, appropriate threshold for transplant with Andy Pistner from Seattle and Rafa Alonso from Toronto, just because we feel like it's such an important topic to reflect on in terms of what our threshold should be and when we're considering, you know, another open heart surgery to correct physiology or another open heart surgery to, you know, give a patient a new condition with a heart allograph. So ultimately, in the setting of a physiologically trained LV due to chronic subpulmonary outflow tract obstruction, our patient was able to undergo successful conversion to an arterial switch operation. She's continued to have preserved biventricular systolic function postoperatively with normal functional capacity. Wow, that's remarkable. It does make me wonder, Brent, what are the long-term complications that she may see following this arterial switch operation? And then how might we counsel her regarding pregnancy? Yeah. So, I mean, she's done remarkably well. And I think I could say that she's actually very interested in hearing this podcast. She was actually in the news in the Bay Area after she underwent this successful conversion over to an arterial switch. So something that's a little bit already out there, but she was really excited and wanted me to send her the podcast and we're done. 
Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, long-term outcomes after the arterial switch operation. Mostly what we're excited about is that these patients have much improvement in terms of their long-term survival. So the studies that have been done to date have quoted upwards of 96% survival at 25 years, which obviously is much improved when you compare it to the atrial switch operation. And um, But it's not to say that that's without still continued morbidity in the long term and mostly with the requirement for intervention and reoperation with both surgical interventions as well as catheterization-based interventions in this patient population. So about 20% actually of the patients will require reintervention at 10 to 20 years of follow-up. This is most commonly related to RVOT obstruction, and usually we see that in the kind of supravalvar region as well as with branch PA stenoses that are incurred with the Lacan maneuver. And then like Dr. Jokodar mentioned, this patient population is also at risk for coronary abnormalities, both kind of in the early operative period where there's an association with operative mortality and immediately post-operative mortality, as well as at increased risk for late coronary complications, including just your traditional atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. The other things that we'll commonly see will be neo-aortic root dilation, just switching the valves over and kind of putting it in a different and kind of more stiffer arterial bed, and then as well as neo-aortic regurgitation correspondingly. Um, so I was wondering, Dr. Jokadar, what you thought in terms of coronary surveillance in this patient population. I know in the pediatric realm, we typically will take a look at the coronary sometimes during adolescence at one point, and that's either with kind of functional assessment, having them go through exercise stress testing, and some people also do an anatomic assessment with a coronary CT. But I was wondering kind of longer, more in the longer term and following these patients 15, 20 years postoperatively, what your ongoing surveillance regimen typically is. So we... We favor getting a low uh, radiation CTA in these patients. And depending on what we see, you know, consider exercise stress testing. And sometimes it's really hard to tell. Some of these coronary arteries are kinked. They're, you know, they're, they're coming off at an angle. And it's really hard to know what to do with that information. You know, this reminds me, one of my mentors, Mike McConnell, taught me years ago. He said, ordering tests is like picking your nose. You need to know what you're going to do with the result beforehand. And this applies here. I mean, clearly, if you have an obstructed coronary and you have a positive stress test, then you have something has to be done. But I'll tell you, sometimes it's really hard to know. Sometimes it's really hard. You'll see a coronary coming off at an angle, the patient's having symptoms, the stress test is negative. What are you going to do with that information? And I've seen enough of these to be you know, quite humbled by the experience. But we've also seen patients who have had severe coronary button stenosis or obstruction completely. Just recently, we had a lady who has her left main is completely uh, obliterated and all her coronaries fill right via collaterals to the left. And she has a very positive stress test, very positive cardiac CT. And she's someone who's probably going to require a surgical intervention to reconnect the left main button or what's left of the left main to the neo-aorta. We've also been in circumstances where we've had to intervene. At least two or three patients intervene percutaneously on some of these. So no two patients are the same. Thanks so much, Dr. Jokadar. And I know with the arterial switch and DTGA, it's actually, in my mind, where, you know, with the neo-aortic dilatation and uh, potential PA dilatation is where I think about the vasculopathy that could potentially be involved with adult congenital heart disease. And I think that in adult congenital heart disease, we think, you know, obviously a lot about sort of the heart, the pump itself, but how there is a lot of inherent abnormality in vascular structures in these patients. And it's an important part of their syndrome for us to consider. But I digress. 
what a wonderful discussion we've all had here today. Thank you so much for joining us. ACHD is a broad field and it has so many overlaps with so many other specialties. And I think we've gone through so many of them today. Uh, Bryn, we'd love to hear about your interest in ACHD and what your career plans are moving forward. Yeah, so I'm thrilled to be able to join the field in the next year and a half. I'll be staying at Stanford for my ACHD fellowship, which I'm really excited about. And I think, you know, I knew a little bit earlier on that I wanted to do cardiology in general. And so when I did my internal medicine and pediatrics residency, it was kind of with the hopes of getting that foundation where I could get a little bit of ischemic heart disease in my residency and then try to kind of make up the rest when I do my ACHD fellowship. Um, I kind of focus on just the aspects of congenital heart disease and the surgical management for my initial fellowship. And I think it's, you know, like other congenital conditions, an amazing opportunity to really see disease across the lifespan and take care of patients across the lifespan. But I also, you know, really like that with ACHG, you know, you are, you can be an inpatient physician, an outpatient physician, you can, you know, you do intensive care, you're taking care of these patients when they're in the ICU. So you really get to follow them in every realm that they're seen in, you know, you're down in the cath lab, you're down in the EP lab, kind of going through the data that they're getting. And so, um, you get great continuity with your patients. I think you establish great relationships with your patients for long, long periods, hopefully. And you also get to kind of see all aspects of their care pretty intricately and be involved in kind of every step of the way, which I think is oftentimes unique in terms of the, you know, when you compare it to other subspecialties as well. That's incredible. You know, at the same time, it's at once a, a very subspecialized field, but at the same time, it's also uh, such a broad and general field for the patients you do take care of. Now, Dr. Jogodar, we've talked a lot about electrical failure and tachyarrhythmias and IART and flutters, but on a more lighthearted note, I'd like to ask you a question we ask of all of our ACHD experts. What makes your heart flutter about being an ACHD specialist? Taking care of my patients. You know, that's what we signed up for. When you take care of your patient, when you care about them, then you're going to go the extra mile and you're going to do everything you can for them and be their advocate and be honest with them and be part of their lives. And that is meaningful. That's beautiful. That makes my heart flutter. And that's fantastic. No, and, you know, ACHD patients, there's more and more of them. And so we are more and more grateful that there are experts like you out there to help them. Um, so everybody, thank you for joining us. And for our listeners, please check out all of our other episodes on our ACHD series here on Cardionet. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And I just have to say, Josh, I'm not sure if you'd agree, but Bryn is so much more functional post-call than I am pre-call. <laughs> I cannot imagine.